Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. Let's say you're clinging to a raft in the middle of a stormy ocean. The raft is definitely helping you out, but it's not a long-term solution. You're just kind of holding on till you end up somewhere. The raft, in this story, is social distancing, and the storm is the pandemic that we're living through. But that's not my analogy. It comes from two researchers at Harvard School of Public Health, Mark Lipsitch and Yonatan Grad. I think um, it's important to keep in mind that uh, really there are two ways in which the pandemic ends. That's Grad, who's an assistant professor of immunology and infectious diseases. In one, we eliminate the virus. Uh, that seems very unlikely because we're already seeing global spread. In the other, it ends because of population immunity. That could happen either uh, from a vaccine that is effective and widely distributed, or because enough of the population gets infected and develops protective immunity uh, from that infection. And if those last two paths, the two that are the most feasible, given that the virus has already spread to millions of people around the world, if they sound to you like two not-so-great paths, well, yeah. That vaccine, by the way, might be a year or two off, or it may be further into the future. Dr. Paul Offit at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who has helped develop vaccines, recently told the New York Times the fastest vaccine ever developed was for the mumps. It took four years. Complicating this picture is that the novel coronavirus has eluded our understanding at almost every turn. We hear a lot about terrible symptoms, which of course are a critically important story. But there's another side to that story. So there is clearly a large fraction of the population that has had mild or asymptomatic disease. The question is, what is the size of that population? Iceland, which has tested about 10% of its population, more than any other country, has found that about half of those who test positive for coronavirus report having no symptoms. Like a lot of things about the virus, it's hard to know what to make of this. On one hand, it may mean that a much lower percentage of people get terribly sick and die than we think, because people without symptoms generally don't seek out tests. On the other hand, it's hard to track down all the cases of a virus in order to isolate people if we're talking about large numbers of asymptomatic cases. And that's especially true in a country like ours, with hundreds of thousands or potentially millions of cases. Which brings us to contact tracing, an idea that has been embraced by several countries and some states. The idea of contact tracing is you find the people who test positive and you find out who they've been in contact with and notify and test those people. Contact tracing is uh, most efficacious in its goal of containment when numbers are low, uh, for sure. It is much, much harder um, for contact tracing to have any impact when you are talking those yeah, numbers of that magnitude. So, so absolutely. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, an intervention that is part of our toolkit, uh, but it can be best applied uh, in particular scenarios. Grad is a member of the External COVID-19 Task Force for Massachusetts, 
one of the states that has made an investment in contact tracing. But no matter what your approach, whether you're a country or a state, to scientists like Grad, the sort of population sampling that Iceland is doing, it's like looking at a dashboard in a car. The numbers you see help you know when you can push the economy forward and when you have to pull people back to do more social distancing and slow down the spread of the virus. And there's a bottom line to restarting the economy, he argues. We need that dashboard. And that dashboard will crucially include not just information about people who have coronavirus, it will reveal what percentage of the population has already had it and is likely immune. That sort of test looks for antibodies in the blood and is called a serology test. Which brings us back to the two options that Grad sketched out for us at the beginning. First, the possibility that the pandemic ends by eliminating the virus, which, as he noted, was very unlikely because of how widely it's already spread. Or it ends because people acquire immunity. That could happen with a vaccine or through most Americans contracting coronavirus. And by the way, if you're wondering whether getting coronavirus actually makes you immune, well, scientists don't have a definitive answer yet. The virus is too new. But Grad says when you look at other coronaviruses, like SARS, which exploded in 2003 and is most closely related to the virus that's causing the current pandemic. It conferred uh, antibodies and the protection seemed to, uh, the antibodies seemed to stick around for at least a few years. So if that's where we're headed, immunity, where does social distancing fit in? This approach that so many of us have been living through over the past few weeks. What's the end game for social distancing and the way in which it helps us flatten the curve? The goal of social distancing is exactly as you say, to, to flatten the curve. And the reason we're doing that is to help reduce the burden on hospitals and healthcare systems and help prevent their collapse, right? So we're seeing in New York and we've seen as well in Northern Italy, Spain, uh, Wuhan, the impact of this virus and the, the threat it poses to those healthcare systems. So flattening the curve is to help prevent that from happening so that when we stop social distancing, we would expect to see uh, cases pick up again. Okay. and a resurgence in infection. So you talked about sort of three ways that this that this story ends. One is you come up with a vaccine. That's really understandable. The other is a lot of people uh, get COVID-19, and so then maybe they really don't get it again. And then the third is the idea of, like, maybe we can get rid of this this disease. Um, you said that's very unlikely, you know, that, like, I, let's just isolate the people who have it. Um, and I, I'm hearing you say that because, like, there's too many people who have it. How can you isolate hundreds of thousands or millions of people? Is that right? That's correct. It's, okay. it's, it's also because this is global. Yeah. So we are seeing spread everywhere. And even if uh, there are some countries that have the public health resources and experience to contain spread within their countries. There are many that do not. Singapore, I think, presents an example of one of arguably the, the, the world's best public health systems, where initially they controlled the spread 
of COVID-19. Yes. Uh, and then as they started to loosen up restrictions, they saw flare-ups. And that led to second round of efforts, including a four-week lockdown of Singapore. So uh, I think, you know, given that this disease spreads so easily, it seems to be very transmissible, and that people appear to be infectious while asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, yeah. uh, it is quite challenging to control. And I think that those factors together, plus its now global dissemination, makes elimination a very unlikely possibility. So if you take a place like Singapore that did do tons of tracing, um, that did do tons of testing, sort of what many people think of as the dream scenario for the U.S., of course, they're very small. They're able to have a much better handle um, on their population and what's going on. But anyway, they did all those things that we that we dream of doing. And then, as you said, cases shot up. Um, what is the path forward, do you think, for Singapore? Are they doomed to cycles of like, Startup, lockdown. Startup, right. lockdown. I, uh, I think this is not just a question Singapore has to deal with, but a question of strategy that every country that is trying to mount a response has to deal with. Mm-hmm. You know, is the goal to try to contain spread and maintain efforts to prevent outbreaks and wait until we have a vaccine? Or is it what one might call a slow burn or a kind of controlled exposure uh, where instead of crushing the curve and bringing cases and transmission down to zero, uh, we flatten the curve and try to navigate between these challenges and maintain our healthcare infrastructure without having to pursue that very challenging uh, strategy of preventing any new cases. Let me ask you about the vaccine. Um, Dr. Paul Offit, who's at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, who we've had on the show, uh, was great. Um, he, uh, he was on a team for developing a vaccine, and he said recently the record for developing a vaccine so far is four years. When you hear people say, like, if we just hang in there for a year, 18 months, do you think like, oh, we'll probably have a vaccine by then? Or or are you less certain than that? What's your view? I am not a vaccinologist, so I am not up on all of the current methods. I know that there are some viruses for which we were able to develop vaccines within, as Dr. Offit said, four years. It may be that uh, with advances in technology, we can move things along more quickly. It may also be that we can't. Uh, There are other viruses for which we have yet to develop a vaccine, despite effort. Now, this virus is getting a tremendous amount of effort, and perhaps uh, with all of that ingenuity, we should be hopeful. I, I know I am certainly hopeful, mm-hmm. but I think it is also worth recognizing and worth planning for and thinking through the possibility that we are not able to quickly come up with a vaccine. 
do you think if we don't get a vaccine for, let's say, two, three, four years, and knowing that different states are different in terms of how much they want to open up the economy, how much they want to keep it shut down, you know, sort of different approaches to social distancing, and then even within states, some people are going to follow the rules, some people not so much, you know, there's obviously differences there. Do you think there's any way around most Americans in the next few years getting coronavirus, assuming there's no vaccine for at least a few years? The epidemic seems very local. We are seeing that play out across the U.S. where the timing of the introductions, the rise in cases, and their spread through communities, and also the responses have been really different. So where New York City seems to be in the throes of dealing with a huge outbreak. There are other places where uh, they haven't seen many cases or any. And this, I think, poses a a very big challenge, uh, in part uh, exacerbated by the fragmentation of the public health responses. To your point about seeing different choices made, across communities, it will result in, again, different epidemics in in different populations. Making decisions about whether in your local community you want to try containment, again, this aggressive Singapore-like effort uh, versus just trying to flatten the curve and introduce social distancing intermittently as needed in order to maintain the healthcare infrastructure while also seeing a move towards herd immunity, each place is is going to make its own choices. And I think that has the potential to be quite problematic as well. Um, uh, Not only would we see fragmentation of responses and very local epidemics, what is the impact of that for the country as a whole? How can we have, say, one state or one community that is trying to restrict travel and do intense screening and a neighboring community that has a very different approach. That seems to me a, v- a very difficult scenario to envision right. and, uh, uh, and, and problematic. Um, I, I wonder how much the underlying health of a population matters. So we've heard a lot that South Korea um, has a much lower death rate than the U.S. in relationship to their population. Um, They've obviously handled things completely differently, but one of the one of the um, issues that's been found through research that is uh, a real risk factor is um, obesity and heart disease, major risk factor it seems like for COVID nineteen. Um, South Korea has five percent obesity. We have thirty seven percent. How much do you think the underlying health of a population factors into their death rate? You know, putting everything else aside, how much does that matter? As you put it in your question, I think the data suggests that it does matter. We know that as well, the case fatality rates quite clearly are also informed by age. So the older populations are at much higher risk than younger populations. Again, it's not to say that there is no risk in younger populations. We see examples of that too. And pre-existing health conditions, uh, like the ones you mentioned, uh, do seem to increase risk. So as we think about at a population level what the risks are, it has to do both with the underlying risk factors and also with the age structure of a population. 
the older a population is, the more people it has in that at-risk category, uh, we could expect that at at least a population level, uh, we'd see higher rates. That doesn't mean that the per demographic rate is different. It's just that the demographics overall in the population are different. Um, Germany is a really interesting case that there's been quite a bit written about. Um, and it's it's trying to be a leader in controlling what happens here. Um, they're trying to sample everybody for antibodies in the months ahead. They're making their own kits. Um, they have said they believe about 70% of Germans are going to get the virus. Are there lessons we can learn from Germany and what they're doing? I think there are lessons we can learn from the experience of every country going through this. And one of our tasks is to monitor how the decision-making in each country where we're seeing many natural experiments uh, plays out. Uh, I think that Germany is one example. Sweden is another example. Uh, Iceland, yet another. Italy, uh, each of these provides different scenarios uh, where we can look and learn uh, from what worked and what might not have worked. Again, that requires a lot of research into and monitoring into what the effect is of different interventions and what the results are of these serologic and virologic tests. But that is incumbent upon us to do. We also have the opportunity to do that even within the United States because there have been many different responses to the local outbreaks, we have the opportunity to look at when people introduced social distancing recommendations, where were they followed? Where were they not followed? uh, And what was the impact on the epidemic in each of those locations? Using cell phone data or other types of data, we can start to understand what people's mobility was and how it changed. For example, in Seattle, there was a report in the New York Times that looked at cell phone mobility data and noted that after the introduction of social distancing recommendations, the average distance traveled went down, I believe it was, from 3.8 miles to 61 feet. Right? So a huge change in mobility, whereas in other places, we haven't seen that kind of change, for example. So being able to look at those changes and then understand what the impact was on the amount of disease in the population would be extraordinarily valuable. That will also help us understand if we do need to, as we expect we will, introduce social distancing efforts again, um, which ones were most effective, right? Mm -hmm. Will we have to do the full lockdown or will we be able to tailor the social distancing? For example, if we learn that you know, closing schools and, and having kids stay home was not actually all that important in slowing disease. Well, that tells us when we have to reinstitute social distancing measures, maybe that's one we don't do. If it were up to you, do you think there is a way to open up things gradually? And how would you do it in the U.S.? Um, it, you know, or would you just keep people inside and schools closed and, you know, for, for a very long time? Uh, I I think we will have to explore ways to open up and the economic pressures, the economic realities uh, are such that we have to. And I think it is incumbent upon us to figure out the way to do that that is safest 
and most reasonable while meeting our goal of trying to limit the threat to healthcare infrastructure. Uh, and that, again, requires having a sense of where we are, right? So what fraction of the population has already been infected and what measures have been most effective? What works or what we can do in one community may be very different from what we do in another community. These responses, it may not be a one-size-fits-all solution. Uh, it much more likely will be tailored to each region or potentially even each community based on what their experience has been so far. Again, I think we are not yet at the point of being able to make informed decisions about what will be uh, the safest way to open up. Well, so if but if we don't get the tests, um, if that doesn't come in the quantities that we hope for, would you just say, just that's okay, keep everybody inside all summer? If we don't have the test, just doesn't matter. Like, However long people need to stay inside, that's how long it needs to be, like June, July, whatever. I mean, I don't know, because I know we're almost in May, and we have been talking about tests for a long time, but I don't, so far, you know, they obviously don't exist in the numbers we would want. I, I just wonder what we, you would do when you think about, like, the reality on the ground. I think we have to do something. We have to figure out ways to improve testing. And we are seeing the rollout of serological testing, which will provide some of that information. So I don't think that we're going to be in a holding pattern, a status quo. I think we will get more information that will help us inform decision making and that those will be critical pieces. I wonder, um, there's been a, a lot of talk about the 1918 flu pandemic, which had a wave, but then came back with a real, really rough wave um, in sort of the fall and winter. And I wonder if you worry at all about, um, you know, if we have still a population by the time the fall and winter rolls around that mostly have not gotten um, the novel coronavirus yet, uh, what the effect of a, a really a particularly rough wave would be? Uh, I worry about that a lot. I worry about that because the fall season is also when we start to see influenza and the combination of COVID-19 and flu is a source of great concern to the healthcare infrastructure, but, but overall to the population. And then I also worry about a fall to winter wave. You know, the, there are other big events that happen in the fall, namely an election coming up in November. So what is the impact of a potential fall wave uh, from that perspective? I think, again, as a society, we need to start preparing for that as a possibility too. Yonatan Grad is an assistant professor of immunology and infectious diseases at Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. Yonatan, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. On our website, we've got more about the pandemic responses of various countries from Germany to Iceland to Singapore. And we'll include views of Sweden's approach, which Grad mentioned, they are letting the virus move in a somewhat controlled way through the population to allow the nation to acquire immunity. Plus, we'll have some of the writings and opinions of Yonatan Grad and his colleague, Mark Lipsitch.